We're looking this morning at John chapter 12, and from verse 37 to verse 43, you'll find it on page 899 in the church Bibles, John chapter 12, and beginning at verse 37. Let's hear God's word. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is God's word. Amen. I remember when I was first being taught mathematics many years ago at grade school. Boy, did I struggle. Maths was not my favorite subject by a long way. Then came along a teacher who had a simple approach. He threatened punishment if we didn't try harder. In those far-off days, it was common in classrooms to have a chalkboard well, if you were caught talking the first time, you had to eat white chalk. Second time, green chalk. And if you still had not learnt your lesson by then, it was red chalk. Soon enough, miraculously enough, everyone started doing a lot better, I can tell you. I suppose we all have areas where we naturally understand things easier or find things harder, but what about in spiritual matters? Why is it that some people believe, and other people, from the same home, exposed to the same spiritual environment, do not believe? Or similarly, why is it that some people understand God better, grow in their spiritual maturity, and others expose the same spiritual environment? Don't. Is it all a matter of personality, of effort, or even divine election? 
In our passage this morning, John is pulling back momentarily from his story to give us some explanation for why it is that some people were believing in Jesus and and some were not. Jesus, you may remember, has just issued his last public sermon to the crowds, and he's challenged them, walk in the light while you still have the light. But many did not. Why? And John here really presents two sides to the answer, interwoven throughout these verses, and those two sides go together in beautiful biblical balance. The first part of his answer you'll find in verses 37 to 40, and he focuses here on those who did not believe, and then in the second half of the passage he'll focus on those who did believe, and therefore what makes the difference between them. In this first section, he begins in verse 37 this way. Though he, that is Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So, to begin with, John very simply is saying it was the crowd's fault. There was nothing wrong in what Jesus had done. Far from it. He had done not just a miraculous sign, but so many signs. And they were not done somewhere else that they had only heard about. They were done before them. So they really had no excuse. I mean, Jesus had changed water into wine. He had walked on water. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. They had no excuse not to believe, yet they did not believe. And John is saying it was their decision. There was nothing lacking in Jesus or what he had done. There was something lacking in them. And what that was, he'll draw out more. But it was their choice, their decision not to believe. Now, in a church like ours, it is important we remember this part of the biblical balance. Yes, as we will see in a moment, God is in control even of salvation. But that does not mean that the individual is not also in control of their own decisions. There's this biblical, beautiful balance that runs throughout this passage. And we'll tease it out as we go through it. But this first side of it, that they still did not believe in him, is what is being emphasized first. At the end of the day, people make choices. It is so important we remember that. Parents. We, of course, must do all we can to train up our children the way they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from it. But whether your child ends up following Jesus in the end is going to be a decision that they will make. They will make their own choices. And therefore, do not congratulate yourself too much if they become followers of Jesus, nor beat yourself up too much if they do not. Some of us naturally take the troubles of the world on our own shoulders. Others more typically always blame other people for whatever goes wrong. In this case, whether or not someone believes does come down to whether they choose to believe. I I remember uh, doing uh, a lot of um, counseling with a particular person in a particular situation. Not just me, but the whole Leadership, the whole team was around this. Great efforts have been put in to help them. Medical, psychological, most of all, spiritual. 
All that we could think of to do, all that could be done, was being done. They had received great counsel, receiving huge amounts of high-end shepherding time from the best that the team had to offer. But at the end of the day, the person kept on making their own choice to keep on doing what it was that they wanted to do. They had all the signs, all the information, everything they could possibly ask for, all the help they could possibly need. But they kept on circling around their sin and every now and then chose to jump back in. And it can be like that with discipleship. It can be like that with evangelism. And that's why it's important that preachers urge us to exercise our wills, to make a decision. Choose this day whom you will serve, as Joshua put it to the people of Israel. As Jesus said, believe in me and you shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in me, you need to come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus now. And it's a matter of your decision. Don't wait for a lightning bolt from heaven here it is believe you need to make a choice there is this side to the biblical balance it's very important it's emphasized don't be passive take a step forward now but there's more to that going on and so John continues in verse 38 so that he says they did not believe so that here's the larger purpose to it The word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So what's going on here is Isaiah was called by God to preach to a people who in the end would not believe in the warnings that God had given him to tell them. And John is saying that message of Isaiah was ultimately fulfilled not in God's people going into exile, but in the rejection of Jesus by God's people. Now, my friends, here is a lens through which you can make the most of the Old Testament, the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, the cross of Jesus. If there is something in the Old Testament that you do not understand, look at it through the lens of the cross of Jesus. If there's a part of the Old Testament that strikes you as odd or difficult, look at it through the magnifying glass of the cross and watch that part come into focus as now precious and meaningful. You see, Isaiah's message to God's people when he was preaching was also important. But through the lens of the cross, we see now it's fuller Meaning, it is fulfilled in the people's rejection of Jesus that led to him being crucified and therefore was the means by which God chose to save sinful people from all over the world. In other words, we will not unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. We will not stop reading the Old Testament for it points forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. As C.S. Lewis put it long ago, the New Testament anyway is little more than a tissue paper of quotations from the Old Testament. You throw out the Old Testament, you've got to throw out much of the New Testament too. And so here, John in the New Testament, by quoting from Isaiah in the Old Testament, is introducing to us the other side of this beautiful biblical balance. That is God's sovereignty. So we've had human responsibility, it is our decision, and now we have God's sovereignty. Their turning away, their not believing, was actually so that God's word, 
given to Isaiah hundreds of years beforehand would now be fulfilled through the cross. They did not believe because God had already prophesied through Isaiah that they would not believe so that Jesus would die on a cross so that we would be saved. In fact, John goes further, verse 39, therefore they could not believe. It was not possible for them to believe. They were not able to believe. How is that, John? Well, he quotes again from Isaiah to explain. For again, Isaiah said, now verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. And now watch this carefully and turn and I would heal them. Amazing, beautiful, biblical balance. Despite our tendency to want to insist that it cannot both be true, that God is sovereign and people really and truly have a real opportunity by their own will to believe, understand, turn and be healed or saved, the Bible insists that both truths are true. Such is the extraordinary balance of the biblical teaching on this matter. You turn to Jesus now, you will be saved. And God is completely sovereign. You know, some people ask me whether I'm a Calvinist. I always want to know what they mean by that. Depending on your background, that's a bit like asking whether you're a terrorist. And for other people, it's like asking, are you, are you part of my club? I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of stuff. So human, this sort of theological tribalism. You know, one person's for Apollos, another's for Paul, someone else for Cephas or Peter. Ah, human, manly stuff. Ugh. I like the way Jonathan Edwards used to say when he was cornered on this issue. He would say, I am a Calvinist for the sake of definition. Whatever exactly that might mean. Or even perhaps better, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, would say, I am a biblical Calvinist, not a system Calvinist. In other words, I follow what the Bible says. I follow what John says here. What the Bible teaches over and over again. God is completely and utterly in control of absolutely everything. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, but that the Father wills it. A sparrow. The heart of the king is in the Lord's hands. The heart of the most powerful person on the face of the planet, that is in God's hands. God is completely in our control of absolutely everything. And yet, we are also truly and really and actually responsible for our own decisions. If they would turn, I would heal them. The Bible frequently then appeals to our will to come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus now. Come to Jesus now. Without delay. This is the hour. They had all the evidence, but they did not believe. It was up to them. It is up to us. Turn and you will be healed. Turn and you will be saved. Now you say, I am bamboozled. How on earth do we put those two things together? And the answer, of course, is that you don't. They are like two train tracks of a train line that go over the horizon of eternity and must never 
cross. On the one side is human responsibility. On the other is divine sovereignty, and they never transect. They always are in parallel into infinity over the horizon of eternity. That is just the way the Bible talks about it. Sometimes in the same passage, sometimes in the same verse. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. It is a both and, not an either or. Ultimately, it is a mystery how the two go together, and it is important that you and I, we humans, are humble enough to let the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man remain a mystery. In the same way, we are to be humble enough to let God be God as Trinity and that ultimately to be a mystery. Jim Packer would say that all heresy comes from the unwillingness to allow God's mystery to remain mystery. The attempt to turn mystery into logic. No, but we retain this biblical balance through worship, week by week, day by day. The worship of God as God. The mystery of the utter godness of God. The great Chicago preacher D.L. Moody used to employ a simple illustration to make this point. It was an illustration of a door. On the front side of the door, there is a Bible text which says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so you come to him, you go through the door, and he gives you rest. You are saved, you are now reconciled with God, and you are his forever. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest across the front of the door. You walk through the door, and you are saved. And then you look back at the door through which you have just walked, and there is another text on the other side of the door which says this, I have known you since before the creation of the world. There is a beautiful biblical balance. And once you see it and understand it and indeed accept it, the sovereignty of God becomes so sweet. You can now sleep even in the most difficult of circumstances because you rest in the hands of the sovereign God. You pray because God is powerful to answer your prayers You believe in Jesus because Jesus is powerful enough to save you. You see, the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty never functions in the Bible to discourage prayer or evangelism, but always to fuel the fire of practical, courageous Christian living. You say, why? How does that work? Because we are also responsible. But now it is a responsibility that we have the power to achieve God's power, God's sovereignty. As the Apostle Paul put it, I work with all his energy that so powerfully works within me. We say, okay, I've got that balance, but how does that, how then do I believe? How do I encourage others to believe? What what is the difference between those who did not believe and those who do believe? Well, then John goes on to explain. Look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. This, my friends, is one of the more astonishing verses in the Bible. Think with me what it is saying. 
Isaiah, when he saw God high and exalted in the year that King Isaiah died, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, he saw Jesus, says John, he saw Jesus' glory, the pre-incarnate Christ. Of course, what that means is that Jesus is not just the man of Nazareth. He is the Lord of all glory, fame, renown, and power. Before all time, as he was and is and so shall ever be, Lord God of all, the Alpha and Omega, worthy of all praise and glory, he saw him. He saw Jesus. So then, why did Isaiah say these things? Why, did he be, why was he so brave? Why did he believe and speak? John says he said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Listen, my friends. If you want to raise up a generation of people who take risks for Jesus and live for Jesus, even in the face of great opposition, who live for Jesus in a sold-out, complete and committed way, who speak for Jesus, the way to do that is to show them Jesus more as he truly is, that is, in his glory. Elevate the person of Jesus. You see, this is why we take so much care every single week when we're choosing our worship songs and Sunday morning, Sunday evening, that the text of the words that we put in the mouths of God's people would elevate the person of Jesus and help us to see more of Jesus' glory. Jesus, therefore, is not some fad, some fashion statement, not some end times prophet, not some social do-gooder or mere moral philosopher. Jesus is glorious. And in the second half of John's gospel, we are now then, remember, entering into what is sometimes called the book of glory. It is all focused on the glory of Jesus, that is the fame of Jesus, that is the praise of Jesus, that is the renown of Jesus. We need to think differently about glory. We tend to think of glory as just heaven, something in the far beyond. But when the Bible talks about glory, it means the gravity, the gravity, the weight, the brilliance of God, that is that which makes God special. His glory, the Bible tells us, was shown in creation. His glory, the Bible tells us, was shown in rescuing God's people from Egypt. His glory is shown, John's gospel is saying, ultimately in the person of Jesus and most of all at the cross of Jesus. In other words, what makes God special, oh surprise of all surprises, is the brutal murder of the Son of God out of love for you. And when you see that, you speak of him. How else? could you possibly live? Then you're fired up. Then you understand. Isaiah saw this glory of God in Jesus, this prevision of the coming of Jesus, and therefore spoke of him. In other words, this is the most practical thing in the world. When someone really tells people about Jesus, when they really live for Jesus, when they really speak of Jesus, it is because they began to see how glorious Jesus truly is. And so the best thing that you can do to ramp up your spiritual life this week is to reflect more on the glory of Jesus. Imagine the most glorious thing you can think of, Mount Everest snowy white, majestically 
elevated on top of the world, looking down at other mountainous peaks, still and clear, cold and pure. The Grand Canyon, impossibly huge, in scale so big your mind tricks you to thinking it cannot be real, but it is, with a sunset appearing at the opposite side, lowering and scattering fading colors of speckled light across the glowing darkness with rays of hope and transcendent meaning. The vast expanses of space peering up through a telescope, a man on the moon, a deep space exploration making its way through the near infinite blackness, void after void of inky silence. John is saying there is something more glorious than any of those things. You see a hint of it when a man jumps onto the tracks of a subway station and pulls out a stranded passenger to safety moments before the oncoming train and himself dies in the rescue of another. You see a hint of it when a starving mother in Africa feeds her child to keep him alive and in so doing malnourishes herself to her own death but to the survival of her child. You see a hint of it when a soldier takes a bullet for a comrade, when a father works himself late at night to provide for his children, when a mother provides yet another meal that is eaten quickly and sooner forgotten. In other words, the real glory, the real glory is in the cross. And above all these hints of such glory, there is one towering moment of glory, taller than Mount Everest, bigger than the Grand Canyon, more infinite and eternal than the blackness of outer space, a moment of such sacrifice that your mind plays tricks to say it cannot be true, but it is, it is. He, God of all glory, gave himself for you to save you, to love you, to keep you, to give you his glory too. Will you not believe as you see something of the glory of Jesus as Isaiah did? Surely everyone would. You would think so. But you and I have a competition going on in our hearts every day of our lives, a competing glory that we often love instead. Look then how John concludes in verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, though many did not believe, he's focusing now on those who did, nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. John is emphasizing the authorities because he has already described how the religious leaders were opposed to Jesus. He's saying not only is it true that some people did believe, it's also true that some, indeed many, even of the religious authorities, those who were hardened against them, even from that group, believed Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for, here it is, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, there is a competition, a battle, a spiritual warfare going on for which kind of glory we truly love. Do we want praise from people or praise from God? Do we want renown from our work colleagues or from God? Do we want the approval of our social friend group, the water cooler rating, or do we want God to say, well done, good and faithful 
servant, come and enter your rest. You see, because these authorities loved glory from people, wanted people to think well of them, they were not willing to confess publicly their faith in Jesus. They did not want to be thrown out of the synagogue with all the social disapproval that would inevitably lead to. Now, there is here then a question and then also a quest with which this passage concludes, and John is intending to call us to. The question is, were these rulers who believed in Jesus but did not confess him actually saved? It is possible, of course, that after the resurrection, some of them came to confess Jesus publicly too, and therefore would most certainly be saved then. But were they saved at this point? And this is an important question today, because Christians in persecuted parts of the world face this in a very real way. Can you say that you believe in Jesus, but still go to worship at a mosque? Can you say that you believe in Jesus without actually ever saying you believe in Jesus to anyone apart from a private, secretive group of people? There are whole theories in mission circles and missiology given over to passing out exactly where someone can say they really have become a Christian on this spectrum of believing and not yet confessing. I remember one secret Muslim background believer who I got to know. Gradually, he told me he was a Christian, but his Muslim friends did not know that he was a Christian. I certainly did not out him. In fact, I did not challenge him to go public at all. We did ministry together and uh, to reach out to some of his friends for Christ without him giving away that he was also believing in Jesus. But I do remember the day when he looked at me and told me he was going public with his faith. I've lost touch with my friend, and I don't actually know whether he is still alive. Or I should say, I don't know whether he is still alive here physically, for I now know without any doubt that he has life to the full, that John throughout this gospel is promising, and has seen the glory of God, and chose God's approval rather than that of man's, even at his own expense and risk to his own life and livelihood and very physical existence. Now, my friends, we have brothers and sisters making these choices all the time these days. In fact, and here comes the quest, the pursuit with which John concludes this part of his book of glory and which he is calling us to make a choice concerning. In fact, which do we truly desire? Glory from people or glory from God? The way John sets it up, it is clear he is saying there is no middle way, no third option, no alternative. And the reason for that is we humans seek glory like a guided missile seeks its target. It is our design intention to seek glory. We are made to love glory the same way that a bird is made to sing and a horse is made to run. Humans, you and I are made for glory. We are on a quest for glory. The only question is, which kind of glory will we seek? You know, the great boxer Muhammad Ali, who lived by the moniker, the greatest, had, if anyone did, human glory. One time he was flying in a plane to his next event. An air flight attendant came up to him and said this, Mr. Ali, would you put your seat belt on, please? Muhammad Ali looked at the flight attendant and said, Superman don't need no seat belt. To which the flight attendant memory replied, Superman don't need no plane either. (laughs) 
Yes, human glory can seem so shining, so brilliant, and so attractive. What someone else thinks of you, what your friends think of you at school, what your colleagues think of you and your performance at work, what other parents think of you by how well your children do in sports or education. But let me ask you this, would you rather have a new car or a new heart? Would you rather have a gold watch at the end of your career or walk the streets of gold in heaven? Would you rather have someone come up to you and say, I really respect you, or have God himself in all his glory honor you? He who honors me, I will honor, says the Lord. You know, recently there's been a whole bunch of research what's going on with all this social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all the rest, and what it's doing to our emotional stability. We live in an age of likes and dislikes, of thumbs up and thumbs down, of followers and so-called friends, and we are constantly judging ourselves and other people by the amount of social media attention we get, the kind of glory we get from people. You know, you can have 10,000 followers on Twitter, a zillion likes on your latest post on Facebook, your Instagram account taking off, and people paying for advertising on your YouTube channel. But in a flash, it can be gone. Such glory is momentary and always dissatisfying. Such glory of likes and tweets and social media, as well as in the real world, can only ever be momentary and is always, in the end, dissatisfying. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Glory from people can never fill the void inside you because you are designed for more. You are designed for glory that comes from God. There is an infinite vacuum within you that can only be filled by an infinite glory. He will never reject you. He will never leave you. In Him, you can have a glory that is above and beyond anything that another person or any number of other people can give you. You. And what John is doing is saying, love that glory. Seek that glory. The glory you are designed to find true rejoicing in. The glory that comes from God. Let's pray together. Oh, our Lord Jesus, we do. so often seek the glory from people. Would you open our eyes, soften our hearts, help us to see the truth that we are designed for your glory. We are designed for you We are designed for your approval of us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, would you wean us from any desire for mere human approval? 
Lord, we think of all those challenges that we face. We think of uh, the work situation. Wouldn't it be so easy to do X thing when really Y is the biblical thing? And if we do Y, we risk the disapproval of people. Would you help us to realize that your glory is what matters? Lord, I pray for the person here this morning who is wondering about whether to give their life to you and they know that their friends will sneer at them and disapprove them if they do. Would you show that person, I pray, by your spirit, the infinite, eternal, majestic value of your glory, your approval? Would you do that now by your spirit, I ask? And would you help us, Lord, as a church to be glory hunters, glory seekers, seeking your glory here in Wheaton, Chicagoland, and all around the world, that your praise might be our greatest desire, for it is that for which we were made. We ask for your help in this, that the brilliance of your glory would be brilliant in our eyes. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.